Welcome. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Yemen's southern secessionist forces appear to have taken effective control of the port city of Aden, which is also the seat of the internationally recognized government of President Mansur Hadi. In this latest conflict, on August 7th, fighters loyal to Southern Transitional Council, or STC, which seeks an independent South Yemen, began an offensive against the government forces. Both sides have been part of a military coalition dominated by Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, which intervened in Yemen in March of 2015 against the Houthis and their allies after they removed Mr. Hadi from power earlier that year. The separatist fighters involved in the recent showdown are United Arab Emirates UAE trained while the government forces appear to be backed by the Saudis. What's the significance of this recent confrontation? How will it impact the ongoing war in Yemen? What do we need to know about South Yemen and its history, and who are the secessionists in Yemen today? To answer these questions, we turned to Sheila Karapiko, a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Professor Karapiko is the author of Civil Society in Yemen, the Political Economy of Activism in Modern Arabia. More recently, she edited a volume entitled Arabia Incognita, Dispatches from Yemen and the Gulf. She spoke with Shahram Agamir. It's very difficult because it seems there are a number of things going on. Several people have referred to it as uh, a civil war within a civil war. So um, there was a time a couple of years ago, but decreasingly so over those couple of years, when the Southern movement and then eventually the Southern Transitional Council was really, you know, considered itself to be part of the Saudi-led coalition. And then that went sour, particularly with the activities of the United Arab Emirates in Aden and the rest of the South, such that two things happened. One was that Southerners became very much disaffected from the uh, so-called Saudi-led coalition, and secondly, that the so-called Saudi-led coalition itself fragmented. So five years ago, we thought that the Gulf Cooperation Council were all like one unit, one force. But that's completely disintegrated at this point. I mean, Qatar has been expelled, and Oman and Kuwait sitting things out, and now there's a spat between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So that's one level. And then on the next level down, the um, Southern Transitional Council, although they seemed and still seem to some people to be a kind of cohesive group, they represent very different places and have very different political ambitions. So there's also a fragmentation within the Southern Transitional Council and within the forces in Aden in particular, that have been fighting against the Houthis and who they see as the northern, what I call, because I'm so American, you know, carpetbaggers and scallywags coming down from the north and invading the south. So it's turning into a scenario that's starting to look more like Syria and Libya. 
This is not the first time that Mr. Hadi's forces and fighters from the armed wing of Southern Transitional Council, SDC, which is a political movement seeking independence for southern Yemen, fight each other. The two sides were involved in a bloody showdown in January 2018. Can you tell us what triggered these recent clashes, and should we even be surprised given the long history of the demand for independence in southern Yemen? I don't think we can be surprised because, as you say, there's been a long history and there's a nostalgia for the old South Yemen. But honestly, it wasn't that nice a place. I mean, they had a shootout in January um, 1986 within the then Socialist Party. And the Southern Transitional Council the past couple of years has consisted on the one hand of people who are still kind of secular and at least leaning socialist, but also a lot of Islamist forces, I guess I should say Sunni Islamist forces prepared to fight against the perceived to be Iranian-backed Shia. And then they presumably developed a loyalty on the at first to the Saudi-led coalition and then secondly to the United Arab Emirates, but increasingly we hear people in the South saying, you know, that the UAE are just another colonial occupier. The other thing I would say in, in response to your question is that the Southerners and even the Adanis, they do not speak with one voice. So opinions vary. Some people are celebrating in the streets because the UAE forces are gone and also the Houthi forces are gone. But others obviously are fleeing the city and terrified of what's to come. So even within communities or neighborhoods or districts inside of Aden, not all neighbors are speaking with one voice. We'll talk more about the aspirations for independence in the South. Surely the recent clashes have further complicated the war in Yemen in terms of the factions vying for power. Would it be fair to say that the recent confrontation, at the minimum, represents the onset of a process with a significant impact on the country and the ongoing war? I hate to say this because I am in some ways, you know, an old-school Yemeni nationalist, although obviously I'm not Yemeni. But I think the disintegration of the country is a nigh. You know, I think that the main obstacle now to Southern independence is divisions among Southerners, rather than any Southern sympathy for remaining in the Republic. I think that a couple of years ago, there was some optimism that the Hadi government would assist the South, because, of course, he has a certain Southern connection. But there's also, and I wouldn't be able to go into this, but some of the Southern Transitional Council people have blood on their own hands, bad reputations. So people suspect the more they know them, the more they're suspicious of some of their motives. So I think, again, I mean, and this is kind of a cop-out answer to a question, but all politics is local. And the people in Aden, in different neighborhoods, in different districts, see things quite differently. And so do, of course, people who identify with the religious 
identity as opposed to, say, the old Socialist Party, which is kind of dead, or, you know, with local councils. And those are very different orientations. Trying to uh, cover everybody under the same umbrella of being pro-independent forces, it could be somewhat problematic, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think almost everybody in the South, as far as I'm able to discern from afar, would rather not be part of a united Yemen. But they do not share, as far as I can discern, a vision of what would come next. So would there be a united South Yemen? And if so, what would it look like? And that's where I don't think that there's a shared vision. Let me go back to these clashes again. On August 1st, there was a Houthi-claimed missile attack on a military parade in Aden. Members of the SDC have accused Al-Islah, a coalition of tribal and Islamist forces, if I'm not mistaken, that have been broadly described as a Yemeni affiliate of the Muslim Brotherhood, of being behind this attack and of colluding with the Houthis to undermine southern Yemen. This is in spite of the fact that Al-Islah and the Houthis stand on opposite ends uh, in the ongoing war in Yemen. Can you talk about Al-Islah and briefly what this group is about and tell us why SDC would make such an accusation? Well, we see in this country also some pretty strange conspiracy theories. And in this case, the collusion between the Houthis and Islah, I mean, seems improbable on the face of it. But I would also add to that that three years ago, when I first heard that Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Houthis were, had joined forces, which pretty much explains why the Houthis were able to overtake Sana'a to begin with and overthrow uh, Hadi. But it seems so improbable to me that initially... I didn't believe it. And so initially also I I don't believe in the supposed collusion between the Houthis and El-Islah. But the current one major figure in in El-Islah is named Ali Mussan. He's a general Mm -hmm. and he's technically the vice president. And no one should put any degree of collusion beyond him. In other words, he would do anything, including currying favor with the Houthis in order to advance his own power. Do you agree with that description that Al-Islah is ostensibly a Muslim Brotherhood affiliate or no? That is not a position that I have ever taken or agreed with. When I asked that question, I said it has been broadly described as such, but I find that rather peculiar. You know, I think in the origins of Al-Islah, there were a couple of different factors. I mean, one was a major tribal leader, the Sheikh al-Mushayikh of Ashid. Another one was a Saudi-backed Islamist who was not himself Muslim Brotherhood, but you know, shared some ideological fanaticism with the right wing of the Brotherhood. And some people I respect do say that that Al-Islah is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to debate them on that, but it's not the way I've seen it. And it sounds kind of strange if there were a Muslim Brotherhood, if there were shared goals with Muslim Brotherhood that Saudi Arabia would be backing him so vehemently. Correct me if I'm mistaken, Aslah was one of those groups that benefited from uh, 
the anti-Marxist, anti-communist right. crusade of right. the Saudis, right? right? That's Back the in... origin, exactly. Yeah. That's the origin. And so it was, it was Saudi-backed. It was close to the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime early on. And Al-Islah played the role, actually, of third party between Saleh's General People's Congress and the southern-based Yemeni Socialist Party, particularly before, but particularly after unification in 1990. And during that time, they were more or less Saudi-funded. So Abdul Majid Zidani, the Islamist I referred to earlier without saying his name, who is one of the founders of the party, you know, spent a lot of time hanging out in Saudi Arabia, living in villas. And more recently, of course, Saudi Arabia has eschewed any connection with the Muslim Brotherhood, which other Gulf powers have taken up that mantle, and that's part of the reason for the divisions within the Gulf Cooperation Council. Between Qatar on the one end and Saudis and UAEs right. on the other. Sheila, even though Mr. Hadi, he has spent very little time in Aden or anywhere else in Yemen. Aden is supposed to be the temporary capital of Mr. Hadi's government. But now his internationally recognized government does not even have a capital in Yemen. You know, I mean, he's internationally recognized, but he's not domestically recognized. Every time I read or hear a phrase like Hadi loyalists, you know, I want to laugh because there's no such thing. He has no domestic support. He was, arra- he was handpicked by Ali Abdullah Saleh as his vice president precisely because he lacks charisma or a following or a base. And then, you know, his rise to the presidency was arranged by the so-called Gulf Cooperation Council initiatives for like a one-year term, which has expired quite some time ago now. He doesn't show up. His policies have driven the country into further chaos. So, you know, I think, I mean, it may be internationally recognized since the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I could send you cartoons, although obviously that wouldn't be much use for your radio listeners, you know, showing Saudi Arabia conferring legitimacy on Hadi, and that in turn means that the majority of the UN Security Council uh, recognize his government. But he is He's not a government. It's not a government. One of the issues that has been brought up is the fact that the separatist forces in the South have been excluded from the peace negotiations. Uh, They are saying their grievances are not being addressed. That's one of their major grievances, at least, you know, this month, is that, and this is another phrase that you frequently see in uh, news coverage, urging the two sides quote-unquote, two sides to negotiations, as if it was the Hadi government and the Houthis. But it's not two sides in this conflict. There's this Southern Transitional Council, which, again, is not necessarily as united as it sounds. Saudi Arabia is not an external mediator. It's an active participant in the conflict. And there are, you know, other parties as well. Ali Mohsen, who has taken up residence apparently in Marib, which is like the wild, wild east, the growth economy. 
and so you know the notion that there are two parties to this conflict is kind of a internationally recognized myth and that seems to be a concern with respect to these what they call peace negotiations is the fact that people who are involved at the local levels have no say in these things these formal groups they really do not represent the people as a whole well precisely i mean again there's this kind of myth of two parties as if this was i don't know what you know the american civil war with the, there's one side and then there's the other side and they each have soldiers but that's not an accurate description of this and again the the libya and syria analogy comes to mind because you can't memorize which side is which and then rest on that because next month there's going to be some other party or some other you know faction or armed group and there's also war profiteers who are deliberately stirring up conflict in order to run arms and impose checkpoints and stuff like that so it's really unfortunately i mean it's really descending into a free for all and if you want to really go back we have to look at how this transition of power from uh, mr saleh's government to handing power over to mr hadi took place and the way it took place it kind of excluded all the uh, people involved in the street politics and people who were involved at the grassroots level and it was sort of a negotiated compromise between these formal parties some analysts have argued that the recent clash between the factions in the south is indicative of disagreements between Saudi Arabia and the UAE over Yemen while others argue that they have converging interests with different priorities This last group say that Saudis gave green light to the separatist fighters to take over key locations in Aden. Mr. Hadi has been remarkably silent on these clashes, but his government officials have complained about what they call Saudi silence. How do you see the Saudi-United Arab Emirates relations in Yemen? Perhaps you can start by explaining to us what the objectives of each of these regimes are well, in Yemen. You know, at one point, I mean, it did seem like they were united. and even the whole GCC was united shall we say in restoring Hadi to power over time the uh, UAE increasingly began to try to carve out its own sphere of influence in the south creating evidently um, military installations on the island of Socotra which is off the southern coast trying to establish pipelines Uh, investing heavily in port facilities in some parts of the south so in other words increasingly looking like a colonial power and public opinion in among southerners gradually and then you know they also started doing um arbitrary arrests uh the UAE and dungeons and arbitrary detentions and not surprisingly that eroded their popular support gradually and public opinion in among southerners the saudis had expected evidently that the rest of the gcc would just follow their leadership and they could extend a kind of hegemony over all of yemen which they've been seeking since world war 2 if not before well they consider yemen as their underbelly 
Well, that's right. They consider Yemen as the underbelly. Yemen remains the largest indigenous population in the whole peninsula. And, you know, they're very unlike the people who, especially the people who govern in the monarchies or the citizens of the monarchies who are all in a minority in their own countries. Yemenis, they wear flip-flops, they chew cots, they... They're, they're kind of restive and populist. And the kingdoms, the monarchies of the Gulf were very worried about the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. They were panicked over the uprising in Yemen. You know, for a lot of reasons, so many people on the streets, the main spokesperson is a woman, they're upsetting the uh, Saudi-dominated Ali Abdullah Saleh regime, which, by the way, when he came into power, everyone just immediately pointed north because it wasn't like he had like some following. He just like landed in power one day after the mysterious assassination of his predecessor. And so there's a, a kind of history of Saudi efforts to um, extend their hegemony over the entire peninsula, and it has now come up against, you know, the restiveness of the southern population and the ambitions of the Emirates. You know, just to mention, DP World, which is a global port operator and it's owned by government of Dubai, has garnered large profits from Yemen's mm-hmm. Aden port, mm-hmm. and. It seems like the importance of South Yemen is due to uh, Bab al-Mandab Strait, which is a junction for trading via the Red Sea, which happens to be critical for the United Arab Emirates. It seems like controlling the port of Aden was not sufficient for the UAE as it approached Djibouti and Eritrea also to lease their ports. And evidently, Eritrea has allowed the UAE to have a military base on their territory. But uh, Djibouti seems to have denied leasing its port. So this control has generated large chunks of profits for the UAE. Well, precisely why more people are talking about this as a colonial adventure. Since you talked about this Saudi-led coalition that started the war in Yemen in 2015, last month the UAE announced it would be gradually drawing down its military forces in Yemen. What are your thoughts regarding this announcement? And What were the reasons behind it? I'm not sure that I understand the reasoning inside the UAE, which is, you know, again, also a little bit complicated. Like, I mean, it has a prince and, you know, a few major actors, but it's a complex political organism itself. The UAE, unlike the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, has actually lost at least some people on the ground in Yemen. And that doesn't play well to the home audience. So that's part of it, I think. I think they were hoping, perhaps accurately, that they could just buy Sudanese or other foreign fighters to do the work. But there's also, I think, a sense that announcing that they're going to do that, it's a bit like the U.S. announcing that they're going to withdraw from Iraq. It plays well at home, presumably, and it's supposed to convince the locals that, no, we have no, you know, permanent ambitions here. But it seems to have coincided also with an intensification of Emirati involvement. 
So they're farming out the fighting to uh, other groups? So. Oh, well, they have been. Yeah, I mean, both to countries that they give assistance to, like Sudan. And then, as far as we know, from probably anecdotal evidence, but, you know, also hiring Nigerians and Colombians. And, I mean, these people would be mercenaries. The Sudanese are sequestered by their own government, as far as I know. But Nigerians and Colombians, they're outright mercenaries. Before we discuss this issue of the Southern independence further, do you have any reason to believe that the Saudis are looking for an end to their involvement in Yemen? One of the ways to do it is by um, essentially breaking up Yemen. Having Southern Yemen, obviously, it may actually weaken Yemen as an entity, as the underbelly of Saudi Arabia. And UAE, clearly, based on what you have been telling us, would be interested in that because it has actually vested interest in southern Yemen, particularly. You know, that's a really interesting question because Saudi Arabia in particular was very strongly opposed to Yemeni unification. Right. And during the civil war between North and South in 1994, they supported the South which was kind of counterintuitive in the sense that the South was mainly, most of the Southern elite were members of the Socialist Party, but it indicated a stronger interest in a divided Yemen. And this is the party the Saudis had been waging a crusade against for years. I mean, right, when, when right. Southern the Yemen anti-communist, was... as you said, the anti-communist, anti-socialist, you know, godless socialists. Under socialism, no man knows who his children are because <laughs> women are public property and so forth. I mean, there was so much anti-communist propaganda. And so, I mean, they were opposed to unification from the beginning and all along. And so the idea that they would like to see, and this may be a kind of convergence you're making me think, this could be a kind of convergence between Saudi and Emirati interests, even now amidst a rift. That's right. Because they might both be interested in seeing a breakup so that there's no longer one Yemen country that has a larger population than the um, kingdoms combined or close. Well, but anyway... But it would be two countries with much smaller populations, obviously, mainly the north, although we haven't talked about and I'm not sure we want to get into it. But, you know, it's not absolutely sure that the north will stay as one cohesive unit either. But I think your point about the Saudi and Emirati interest in seeing Yemen divided at least into two parts is probably a valid one. Well, what you're saying about the North, I think you should go ahead and discuss that now. If you think about it, further disintegration of Yemen means a weaker entity to the south of Saudi Arabia. And that would be exactly what Saudis would be looking for as an alternative to completely controlling the land. That's not on the table for them. No, I don't think they can do that. Um, the reason why I kind of tried to punt that issue is because... Again, all politics is local. So, you know, there are the northern half of North Yemen where there's a majority of Zaydis who, in the Western Anglophone press, we re refer to as Shia. 
And then there are other places. And that's the Houthi stronghold, right? Well, the Houthi stronghold is really in the far north. And in other places that may have Zaidi majorities, and, and some of these places, I mean, like everybody's Zaidi, so they don't even call themselves Zaidi. They just call themselves Muslim. The Houthis were fighting Ali Abdullah Saleh, which is why I initially thought, wait a minute, they've joined common cause? That doesn't make sense. But the Saudis had intervened to support Saleh against a Houthi rebellion that took six different mini-wars. And so there's the politics in those places. And again, that's not one uniform uh, place, but let's just say there's the politics in those places. And then there are the politics in the mid, what is called the Midlands or the Southern Uplands of the former North Yemen, of which the most populous area is Taiz or Taiz Governorate, and the city of Taiz or Taiz Governorate and also Ib Governorate, which are Shafi'i, in other words, Sunni, although again, they wouldn't call themselves that particularly. And they have like local councils with very local interests and concerns and politics, some of which are not very nice. So Taiz City in particular, Al-Islah, has been trying to take over now for a couple of years, and there have been some ferocious and bloody street battles. And that is kind of contrary to the dominant narrative of Sunni versus Shia, because it's actually Sunni versus Sunni, or Shafi'i versus Islahi, and so there's Taiz, that area, which is, again, mountainous and historically kind of the most, I'm not sure progressive is quite the right word, but it's the only word I'm finding, part of North Yemen, so politically active, a lot of during the early days of the republic in the 1960s and 70s, most of the leadership came from there, a lot of the impetus for unification during the late 80s and up until 1990 came from that area, which was populated by people, many of whom had been traveling back and forth from Aden to Taiz for generations. And then there's another area which is of importance, but in a slightly different way, which is the Tehama or the Red Sea coast, which if I dropped you down there tomorrow you would think you were in East Africa. Mm. I mean, it's conical grass huts and mm. compounds, and the people are mostly, you know, Afro-Yemenis. They're very dark-skinned. They're Shafi'i, and they have been the disproportionate victims of the Saudi bombings. And the irony here is, is of course, that the Saudi bombings are in name of combating Iranian influence and Shia loyalties, these people have no interest in Iran or the Houthis. They just happen to be in a place, they're they're not as heavily armed as most other Yemenis, and they had very little means of self-defense when the Houthis came in and took over kind of the major installations and ports and so forth, but the market bombings and so forth have been again, disproportionately against these poverty-stricken communities of basically black people. 
They're not very as well politically organized as the people in Taiz, who, again, are historically quite well politically organized and have a higher rate of literacy. But the people of the Tama also have different um, interests and concerns that they frequently don't share with the people that they consider to be like the mountain people. The picture you're depicting could be a multipolar Yemen with all these different interests colliding. That may be what Saudi Arabia is looking for as an alternative to the current war, which is becoming somewhat not sustainable for that coalition led by Saudis. I don't know how concerned they are about the attempts in the U.S. Congress to block Saudis' efforts in that war again in Yemen. Well, a two-part answer to that. First part, once again, you've made an astute observation, because for several decades, and now I've kind of lost the pulse of this, but it's been clear for a long time that given the vacuousness of internal politics in Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf monarchies, one of the ways that that's played out for years, decades, has been supporting rival factions or in many cases rival politicians in Yemen. And I think that probably has accelerated during this war. So I think part of what's going on that's very difficult to map, trace, or follow is that rival Saudi, I don't know, princes or whoever they are, cultivate local warlords or sheikhs or groups in order to carve out little spheres of influence, and in many cases to cultivate divisions and and violence. To go back to your earlier observation, I think that the Saudis, they don't want an end, they want a victory. So there's an analogy to, you know, Vietnam. Good point. Peace with honor. In other words, we want the other side to surrender. And the Saudis, I think the crown prince needs to declare victory one way or the other. Capitulation on the other side. Right. Won't stop, you know, short of some way of declaring victory. In Congress, I think they're, again, of two minds, and this extends even to, say, Bernie Sanders, but much more to the majority in the Senate, especially in the Senate, but also in the House. They're torn between some level of respect for the rules of war, which have been so seriously violated, and civilian deaths and cholera deliberately created. And The reports are that there have been more than 18,000 civilians killed in this war. We don't know yeah, the exact Yeah, but that doesn't number. even count the cholera yeah. deaths, sure. starvation, and displacements. I mean, you know, there's a reason why the UN keeps calling it the world's worst humanitarian disaster, and it's not like there's no competition for that, right? And yet it's a consistent report from the UN. So, you know, there are members of Congress who are conscious of that, but American arms exporters have operations in a lot of congressional districts, and I believe it's true in every state. And so members of Congress are torn between what might, for the lack of a better term, be called conscience and economic interests 
including campaign donations, but also jobs. So and I don't know how much hope we can place in Congress for this. Let's talk about uh, this question of the South. Uh, secessionist sentiments in South Yemen have always been strong, but over the past eight years they have been eclipsed, if you like, by the 2011 uprising that brought an end to Ali Abdullah Saleh's 33-year authoritarian rule and the ensuing war in the country. In order to understand the socio-historical context for what is known as the Southern Question, could you give us a brief history of the North-South discord in Yemen? So there was this moment of jubilation in late 1989 and 1990 over unification, which did kind of, if you pardon the expression, liberalize both the North and the South. So it liberalized the North in terms of things like societal norms and failing and that kind of stuff. And in the South, it dismantled, or at least seemed to dismantle, uh, the police states. And then there was a lot of enthusiasm. I was there for this period in 1993 and most of 94 when there were these openly contested elections and there was like, you know, a hundred new newspapers and all kinds of the same stuff that was going on in, in Eastern Europe during the same period of a great political opening. Then in 94, the two armies, neither of them, Ali Abdullah's or the old Southern Army, they didn't want to accept the results of the 1994 elections. And so then they had a little war and Southerners got trounced and ran off to the Gulf. The leaders, at least, ran off to the Gulf. And then that was where I started referring to the relationship as carpetbaggers and scallywags because what happened was that northern generals and friends of Ali Abdullah and others, you know, went down to the south and sort of declared that they owned the former public property and started imposing a new kind of tyranny. And that festered for a while and kind of got worse. And then the Southern movement started to develop with a fair amount of popular support, but again, also a fair amount of individual careerism until then 2011 with the uprising, there seemed again to be a kind of moment, at least I, again, being a kind of pseudo-Yemeni nationalist, was like, okay, everybody nationwide is united around this movement, and this is really cool, and they're going to depose Ali Abdullah, and there's going to be something better. But then the Gulf Cooperation Council interceded, intervened, to make sure that the popular uprising was suppressed. And in the meantime, armed groups, including but hardly limited to the so-called Houthis, who are also called, by the way, Ansar Allah, took over the popular movement which, again, was initially kind of very feminist. But after, you know, a long time when they remained in the streets, like nine months, I'm not sure that's exactly, but a long time, it was taken over by armed men. And in the meantime, the Gulf Cooperation Council arranged this initiative to hold a so-called election where only a Hadi was candidate. 
and that's how he became the internationally recognized leader. And then since then, I mean, the, the Southern movement has gained particular strength, and those of my foreign and Yemeni friends who would call themselves Southern nationalists, rather than what I call myself, kind of Yemeni nationalist. I mean, they just are like, okay, we are so tired of these Northerners. <laughs> Nothing to do with them at all. Well, there is also a resentment over the distribution of wealth, right? The Southerners think they are the main uh, source of generation of wealth in the country in terms of natural resources, particularly oil and and they don't seem to be benefiting from it. And they were also resentful of the fact that public sector jobs were being given to uh, people who were not from the South. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the outcomes of the 1994 Civil War was that uh, under Saleh, all the public sector jobs were going to, you know, his cronies, a few of whom may have originally been from the South, like Hadi. Sheila, what is the nexus between... Uh, pro-independence Herak, uh, the southern movement that was established in 2007, and the Southern Transitional Council, which is on the news nowadays as the pro-independent force. I understand STC it was only established two years ago. So what's the nexus between the, these two entities? And they are not the only voices for independence, correct? Correct. Also a very good question, and not one that I'm sure I have a particularly nuanced response to. The Harak is much older, and it is, as the name, which of course means movement, suggests kind of much more popularly based. The Southern Transitional Council is really comprised of governors and other elites from most of the Southern governors. On the one hand, it's much better organized than Harak, but on the other hand, it's also much more elitist. And not everyone, I think, not everyone is some, but not everyone who identifies with Al-Hirak is supportive of the Southern Transitional Council. And I think that the Southern Transitional Council, and maybe I'm extrapolating here, but I don't think they see support from Al-Hirak. And so I think they're a bit suspicious, as elites everywhere are, of the populism of Al-Harak. But again, Al-Harak, they're pretty disorganized. They don't seem to have a unified leadership. No, I mean, it's like what we said about the Egyptian uprising, either leaderless or leaderful, whereas the Southern Transitional Council, you know, is comprised of some quite prominent politicians, some of whose fathers, usually, were emirs or sultans or something in the old protectorates under the British system. You're talking about the differences between grassroots levels organizing versus somebody who's focused on, on the state and capturing the state functions and, you know, that bureaucracy. Herak has been active and fairly strong in South Yemen, as you mentioned. They have used the term colonial power to describe the northern domination mm. and mm. the South mm. Arabian identity has been constructed in negation of Yemeni identity. What can you tell us about this discourse in Yemen? How dominant or how popular is it in southern Yemen? Oh, I think it's very widespread. For one thing, of course, unlike the north, the south had this vocabulary for a long time because they were under British protection, and in the case of Aden, a British crown colony. So they really had 
the kind of vocabulary of anti-imperialism, of resistance to foreign occupation, pretty heavily all along. And so they've kind of resuscitated that. And I think it's very widespread. Given the discourse in the South, and given what just happened last week, you mentioned there are divisions within the pro-independence movement. Is this the only reason that would prevent the SDC and other secessionists in southern Yemen to declare independence tomorrow? Or there are other considerations, such as financial involvement of the foreign and regional powers. I mean, in other words, what's the end game for this movement? Well, I think you've already mentioned two of them that are important. I mean, one of the reasons I thought for unification was that a fair amount of the oil was discovered like underneath the border, the old north-south border. But more of it is in the south than in the north. The other one is, although for most of the existence of the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, i.e. South Yemen, the Suez Canal was closed. And so Aden, which at one time during World War II had been one of the main ports in the world, kind of bankrupt. But now there's a fair amount of potential, both for Aden and for the port around Al-Mukalla, which is closer to Oman. And so I think many South Yemenis, rightly or wrongly, perhaps rightly, believe that an independent South would be more prosperous than it is currently, which, of course, is like not a very high bar. And then there is a certain national pride. I mean, any pictures you see, they're flying the old South Yemeni flag. There's a certain, I want to say, romantic recollection, particularly by people who didn't live through either of them, of the colonial period and the socialist period. But among those romantic images are relative freedom for women, for instance, compared with what happened in the north under Saleh, which was what I would refer to as the Saudization of gender relations. Like before then, even in the north, I mean, actual black veiling was a minuscule, minuscule phenomenon of the um, aristocracy. But people in the south associate veiling with uh, northern influence rather than with Saudi influence. And there are other things, too, that, I, again, I think they're a little bit, I think some of these memories are kind of romanticized just the way we see in some post-communist, some other post-communist environments where, oh, in the good old days, hmm. this, that, and the other thing. But on the other hand, it's not for me to decide that their recollections are wrong. I didn't live there. I don't live there now. I mean, we did talk briefly about the United States' role in Yemen. The U.S. military has been resupplying aircrafts. I don't know if they still do that. In aircraft engaged in bombing runs and providing intelligence for targets hit by Saudi Arabia. And many analysts believe that the coalition would be grounded if Washington withheld its support. Where does the United States stand with respect to Yemen today? I've been saying for a really long time, like decades, that the U.S. doesn't have a Yemen policy. It only has a Saudi policy. And the Saudi policy is that whatever the Saudis want is fine because they buy a lot of weapons. And, you know, they also provide things like 
funds for American presidential candidates. I mean, I don't want to pick on Hillary Clinton, but she owns a lot of Saudi jewelry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, okay. This when her husband was president and then when she was a candidate. And so congressional conscience is notwithstanding, I don't really see a room for a big change in American policy towards Saudi Arabia. Yemen is described as the world's worst humanitarian crisis, as you mentioned earlier. After four years of catastrophic war, millions of Yemenis are just one step away from famine. More than 20 million people across the country are hungry. Half of these people are suffering from extreme levels of hunger or just one step away from famine. This is a 14% increase from last year. That's just in one year. Two-thirds of all districts in the country are, are already pre-famine, and nearly every child in Yemen is in need of humanitarian assistance. Where do you think the war in Yemen is heading, and do you see an end to this tragedy in the foreseeable future? Standard response from any political scientist is, I don't have a crystal ball. That being said, I've lost optimism. I mean, I'm having this conversation with you, which is good, but I'm basically, I'm out of optimism. I'm, I'm out of energy to combat the U.S. role. Uh, I think that, you know, even an inf a, a sudden infusion of food, which is very unlikely at this point, will only stem but not reverse starvation and cholera and... You know, deaths from stupid things like measles. So the poor children of Yemen and their parents. It's going to be one of these situations like Sierra Leone or Cambodia where it will take a generation, if that, if not more, to return to some level of normalcy. And to my mind, I know you didn't actually ask this question, but we're looking at the obscene wealth of the Gulf monarchies, imposing death and suffering and devastation on the wretched of the earth. Sheila Carapico is a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond in Virginia. She's the author of Civil Society in Yemen, The Political Economy of Activism in Modern Arabia. More recently, she edited a volume entitled Arabia Incognita, Dispatches from Yemen and the Gulf. She spoke with Shahram Agamir. <laughs> 